we're in the midst of a series. We're talking about the ways that we overcome those fears, those problems, those giants that keep us up at night. And keep us awake. That prevent us from being all that God intends for us to be. That stop us from fulfilling God's promise and God's desire for our lives. And we kind of talked about this last week, but the conviction underneath this series is simply that God desires the absolute best for you. In fact, the scripture passage that we use, the scripture verse that we use comes from John 10.10 and it's Jesus talking and he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, Jesus has come, that we might have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. And the conviction underneath this series is simply this, that many of us in this room are living with things, that are living with problems, that are living with fears, that are living with sins, that is living with something in our lives that is preventing us from experiencing the abundant life that Christ has shown us. And we use two out of the last three weeks, we've talked about one story in Scripture, and it's going to kind of be the launching point for us each week as we talk about the way God intends for us to overcome any of these things. And it's the story of David Goliath. And just three points that we used last week, I want to review real quickly because they overlay everything that we're going to do in this series. And it's simply this, that first of all, in that story of David and Goliath, that great story, we are not David, Jesus is David. And the point there is that it is not our job to just get strong and go fight what we're going to talk about and just do it in our own strength and take care of it. That Jesus has fought for us and that he is David in that story. And secondly, we talked about that our motivation for that should be the glory of God, must be the glory of God. That it's not just to get free, it's not just to get something out of our lives, it's not just to do something better, but it is in order that we can serve God better than we can give Him glory. And lastly, we said that the giant, whatever it is in your life, whatever it is that's preventing you from being the best that God has called you to be, is already dead. And this is not some kind of name it and claim it kind of thing. Just speak the words and it will be true. It's true because Jesus has already defeated our greatest giant on the cross. And he will take care of anything in our lives that's hindering us. And so you go, that's great. That's great, Pastor. I'm, I'm glad you've given us those points and that was really inspiring. But I know that for many of you in this room... Living the life that God has promised, living that life abundantly, seems so far away. If you're honest, some of you in this room don't really care about that. I mean, you're just kind of making it through life and you're doing good and you've got stuff kind of laying and you're like, I'm in a good spot or, or at least I, I, I'm doing what I want to do. And I don't really, I mean, I mean, that probably should be something I think about living for the glory of God and all that. But right now I'm just kind of doing my thing. And for some of you, there's a desire that you'd like to do that. But something in your life is controlling you. Now the clinical term for something controlling your life is addiction. And I hesitate to use that word because when I say addiction, almost immediately we think of the big stuff. And when I say big stuff, I just mean the stuff that's out there that people know about. So you think of drugs and alcohol. And I'm not saying that there aren't people because statistics would tell me that in this room right now are people where substance abuse, either through illegal drugs, things that they're, um, that you're not supposed to have, things that you're not supposed to be able to get, things that is illegal to possess or own. Some of you in this room, statistics hold true. Some of you in this room are dealing with issues 
of substance abuse when it comes to illegal drugs. Not to mention that some of you in this room, if statistics hold, are dealing with not illegal drugs, but with prescription medication or things that your doctors have given you or things that you try to get in order to alleviate pain. That You are dealing with those kind of addictions. And statistics definitely tell us that somebody in this room, some people in this room, some of you in this room are dealing not with illegal drug stuff or with prescription medication, but that alcohol is an issue in your life because it is the thing that you go to when you need something to make you feel better or to numb the pain. And so I I, I hesitate to use the word addiction because the first thing we think of is those things. And there are people in this room that I am convinced are are, are dealing with that. I don't know names, but just when you talk to this many people, people are dealing with that. But addiction in our culture takes all kinds of forms. Maybe you're not addicted to alcohol or to drugs and you never do that kind of stuff. But money is the thing that you pursue in your life or security or family and taking care of all of that stuff and getting it in order and that you spend your life trying to make sure all of that is taken care of and you're addicted to security or you're addicted to the high of money or you're addicted to the high of success i mean in our culture we talked about this a little bit last week sex is one of those things that people in our culture are addicted to in a lot of different ways pornography is absolutely rampant Statistics tell me that there are not one or two of you in this room that are dealing with the issue of pornography. There are multitudes of you in this room dealing with the issue of pornography. And it's changing how you view life. It's changing how you view the opposite sex. It's changing how you view relationships. And you are just caught in the midst of all of that. Some of you are caught in the addiction to stuff. You just want stuff, cute stuff, cool stuff, the latest stuff. Electronic stuff, clothing stuff, food stuff. Some of you are addicted to power or control. When life starts to spin out of control, you do everything you can to assert your control back on the situation. Some of you, like most people in our culture, most people in general, are addicted to the approval of others. Now, our society has figured that out and monetized that. Some of the biggest companies in the world currently are monetized. They make money based on the fact that you want the approval of others. So you put a picture on their website and you wait for that little heart to show up on Instagram or the like to show up on Facebook. Y'all won't act like it, but some of you will take a picture and you're like, man, that, that's, that's a good picture. You'll put that up on Instagram and you're like, just waiting for it to roll in. Come on. Comments, likes, and then you refresh, refresh. Like, come on, I liked his six times in the last week. They got to like mine. I want people to see it. I want people to know. And listen, Instagram, Facebook, all that, they're great tools to be used in the right way. But they also feed into this addiction that we have to have others approve of us. You're like, how can I live the life more abundantly when my life is controlled by something? Maybe for you, it's not being controlled by something. It's just a mistake or sin or a problem or a lack of judgment that you made years ago, weeks ago, days ago that is still weighing on your mind. It's not addiction that's preventing you from seeing what God wants you to have, but it's, it's the guilt and the shame that comes from what you did. 
Or even guilt and shame you feel about what other people did that you approved of or didn't approve of, but you were there or a part of or saw. Maybe it's an inappropriate relationship that you had or you started or maybe you've called it off and you're not in that anymore but you still live with the guilt and the shame or maybe it was the you got into a marriage and then something fell apart and divorce happened and you just feel guilt and shame still about that or maybe it is a test you cheated on at school or somehow you manipulated the numbers at work or you slid something into the into work that wasn't supposed to be and it got you a promotion or it elevated you to a level and you never told anybody about it and you're guilty you feel shame about what happened in the past Maybe it's a shortcut you took in life, in finances. There's guilt, there's shame over that. You say, how in the world can I live my life for the glory of God? How can I live with the giant already defeated when daily I'm reminded of what has happened in my life or daily I'm giving in to this sin? So here's what I want to do today. I really have two purposes in this message two things that i want us to do and the first is this i want us to understand the reality and the seriousness of sin in our lives because there are some of you in this room that are on the edge of making a decision of doing something that will forever change the trajectory the direction of your life and you do not realize now how significant of a difference one sin can make in your life so there are two, two paths. The first path is, I want us to be completely aware of the reality of the complications and the problems that sin brings into our lives. But then the second thing I want to do is, because there are some of you, there are some of you on the edge of that. You're, you're, you're flirting with it, or you've started down a road, or you've begun this, and you, you're, you're on a path, or you're about to start a path that has going to have serious consequences. And you don't even see it right now, but it's there. And there's some of you on the other side that you've already done it. So one thing is I want the seriousness of the sin that happens in our lives to be understood. But then I also want to come on the backside of that and say, but here is the grace that is available when you mess up. Now, now here's the danger here. Here's the balance I want to break. I, I don't you want you to fall so in love with the grace that you think I can do whatever I want to and come get grace. And I also don't want you to get so enwrapped in the dangers of sin that you don't realize grace is available. Do you understand the tightrope there? Maybe not. Hopefully you will at the end, right? Because here's the thing, sin has serious consequences, but the grace of God is available no matter what you've done. And to do that, we're going to talk about a guy that we've talked about for the last three weeks. Because one of the things I absolutely love about the Bible is that it presents people exactly as they are. If you were writing a biography of this guy and you wanted to make him look as good as possible, you would not even begin to include what we're going to talk about today. But it tells us this is who he is. He's the main character of the David and Goliath story. That means that it's David. Good just seeing if you're still with me, right? It means it's David. David is, in the Bible, one of the most beloved characters you can find. I mean, people still today love talk about David. We do sermon series on David. We do all of this. And he is a beloved figure. He's the man who killed Goliath, fought a bear, killed a lion, protected the sheep, didn't kill Saul when he had the opportunity. He's the ruddy little run of a boy that gets picked to be king. He he consolidates the kingdom of Israel. He does all these amazing things. He is by far the greatest king in the history of Israel. 
And yet he is completely human and gives in in moments of weakness to something that forever changes his life. Now we're going to be in Psalm 51 for most of the day, but we're going to start, and this will be on the screen so you don't have to turn there, in 2 Samuel 11, alright? So in 2 Samuel 11, we have a story of David making a major mistake. And my guess is many of you in this room already know what this is. I mean, we, we now teach this in preschool, Sunday school, alright? Now, we leave out some of the details. All God's people said, right? We don't teach them all the preschoolers. I don't need to answer questions at lunch from Maddie and Ava about some of these, all right? But we teach it because it's such an important part of Scripture. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it starts this way. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. We're going to leave it there for a second because here's what's really important to understand. This tells us a lot of information, and it shows us some of the first steps that are taken towards the sin that David commits. And there are things that we must be aware of. The first thing we see here that is in this passage, you can write this down if you're taking notes, it's not going to be on the screen anywhere, but the first thing we see is that the first problem David had to overcome is that he had been extremely blessed by God. You go, wait, 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 <laughs> that's a problem? Well, in Scripture, what we see is there are two general times when Satan really attacks. The first is when we are going through a really stressful, difficult situation. And the second is when we've got everything we could ever want. There was a guy that died this week, right? That the world's making a big deal about. Right? Musician. What's his name? We can't say his name because it's a symbol, right? Some of y'all don't understand that. Some of you will, right? Back in my day, he changed his name to a symbol for a while, all right? You talk about, Susan and I were having this conversation because they, the preliminary reports, and this isn't um, factual evidence, preliminary reports are that um, he, at the end of his life, or at some point in his life, became addicted to pain medication. And if you hear people talk about him, it's like, what else could you want in life besides what he had? He's considered by many to be the greatest guitar player, musician possibly of his generation. Number one hits for a couple of decades, performed what some say is the greatest Super Bowl halftime in history, accolades upon accolades, anywhere he wanted to go, anything he wanted to do, people would literally get out of his way to let him do it. And yet he's spending the end of his life self-medicating for pain. And not necessarily even like physical pain, just pain. Because sometimes in life, the worst thing that can possibly happen to you is to get everything you've ever wanted. And you forget upon whom you are dependent. David's blessed here. He didn't have to go to war because the wars are taking care of themselves. I mean, it tells us here that they go out, he sends the men out, they ravage the Ammonites, they besiege Rabbah. He has built peace, he has built a palace, he is living the dream of a king of this time. He has wives to take care of him, servants to take care of him, he's got children that are in line for him. He's been promised by God that he would be the king and that his family would rule forever. This is the pinnacle of what you want to be as David. And yet, he's not satisfied. The second thing we see here is that David has disengaged with his responsibilities in life. Now, this is a big statement. If you've ever heard this preached, if you've ever heard me preach or learn Sunday school, we talk about this. But David remained at Jerusalem. King 
kings didn't remain in Jerusalem. They didn't go to the front lines of the battle, but they were always in battle. And he was supposed to be there as the king when the battle occurred. And he decided, I don't need to go anymore. And he disengaged from the purposes that God had given him in his life. Story goes on. It happened late one afternoon. Just just happened. It was kind of... When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Now, here's, we have to re- remember this, okay? David seems, this seems like an innocent, what in the world? David's just kind of walking around. But this verse before us told us that all the men and all the servants had gone to war. If all the men and all the servants have gone to war, who's left? Women and children, and that's it. Except for David. That's what the scripture seems to suggest. Is the only man left at home of fighting age is David. And so when he gets up and he hears, this is not like, this is not like soundproof walls. He's up on a balcony. He hears things happening. He gets up off his couch and begins to walk around on the balcony. What does he think he's going to see? Right? They're going to be what? Well, if he sees anybody, it's going to be women, right? He was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now, let me just say something. The word beautiful in the original Hebrew means like hot. Okay? And in the Bible, they don't comment very much on people's appearances. And so when they do, you have to take notice of it. And so when it says that she was not only hot, she was very hot, it means like smoking, right? Like, this is beauty personified here. And David's walking out there and he happens to look over and he happens to see this woman who is smoking hot and she's bathing. And so he walks back to, into his house and says, I shouldn't have seen that. I'm going to go back in and do nothing about it. Is that what happens? No. Next verse. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And I love this because we don't know who this is. We don't know who said this to him. But it is a sign from God. It's a yellow light that should have been a red light. That, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. He says, hey, um, <laughs> just a quick question. Who's that? You know who that is? Hey, who's that? And the person came back and goes, you mean Bathsheba? And then notice how they identify her. You, you mean the daughter of Eliam? The, the wife of Uriah? What I love about this is David in this moment, he'd become careless. So he's blessed, he's disengaged, and he's careless. And he's in a moment where he's looking down off of the balcony and he thinks to himself, man, she looks great and I need to find out who she is. And this person comes to him and says, wait, 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 put, hold. That's not something down there that's for your personal pleasure. That is Uriah's wife. And the daughter of Eliam. What you see as something just to fulfill a need in your life at this moment is somebody's daughter and somebody's wife. You're not just taking care of some object. You are messing with people's lives, David. This is a warning shot. 
David, wait a minute, wait a minute, David. You, you don't want to, this is the don't put yourself in that position, David. Be careful about what you do, David. Don't get careless, David. Don't, nobody's going to say anything to you because you're the king. You're the only man here. But David, that's Bathsheba. That's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's wife. And David, as many of you, runs right through that yellow light. Never thinks about slowing down. David sends messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. And if you read the next seven chapters of the book of 2 Samuel, the carnage that comes from that decision is unbelievable. Here's what I want to tell you before we kind of get to that. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But here's, here's a statement I want you to hear and I want you to write down. And listen, if you don't write anything else down, you don't think anything else about this sermon, you don't think about it again. If you want to write down one thing, here's what I want you to write down. It is easier to avoid temptation than resist sin. It is easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. The problem is, many of you think you're stronger than you are. And you think, well, if I get in that situation, I'll be able to handle it. Can I tell you something? You won't. And so don't put yourself in that situation. The backseat of a car or alone in someone's house is not the time to figure out how far is too far on a date. Because you're not going to make a good decision there. If you've got an issue with stuff, when it's in your online cart at Amazon, is not the time to decide whether you ought to have it or not. You shouldn't even start in the first place. Save for later is not a solution. David should have known this. It's easier to avoid temptation than resist sin. And here's what we need to do to avoid temptation. The first is we need to understand how sin can destroy your life. Absolutely destroy your life. David is one of the most revered, special men in all of Scripture. And yet this sin with Bathsheba destroyed his life. You think that's an overstatement? By the end of this chapter, that child is dead. Now, most of you know what happens at the rest of the story. David, he sleeps with her. What happens? She, she gets pregnant. And that's a problem because there's only one man in the kingdom. Right? Anybody turns up pregnant while everybody else is at war, the list of potential fathers is very short. And David says, we got, we got a problem here. She's pregnant and uh, I don't know what to do. Hey, I know what to do. Call her husband home for a special visit. He can come report to me and then he can go home for the night and then we'll just pretend that it's his. They call Uriah home and he says, I can't do that. My brothers are out there fighting on the field. I can't go home to my wife when they are sacrificing out there. David says, man, that didn't work. So the next time he has Uriah back and he says, here's the thing, Uriah. I got a little something special for you to drink. I want to celebrate what you're doing. If you'll just drink this, you have as much as you want. And then he was going to trick him to take him back home. The problem is Uriah drank way too much and passed out of sleep. David says, the only thing I can do is kill him. And so he sends Uriah back to the front lines and says, take this note with you. And the note that Uriah carries is a note that says, when the battle's raging, everybody else step back. 
Uriah carried his own death notice to the battle lines. They all step back. Uriah's killed. Suddenly David has his cover. He's covering up his sin. He's got it all taken care of. Nobody's going to figure this out. Because when the widow happens, somebody had to take her in. And being the good king that I am, I took her in. And as I took her in, things happened. And now we have a child. It's all on the up and up. But the problem is it wasn't. And when you read the next few chapters, let me just tell you a little history of what happens to David. Because I want you to understand how one sin, one choice can ruin. And some of you are on the cusp of making a decision that's going to create a path. And that path is going to lead to destruction. Here's the thing. The next few chapters, you know what happens to David and his family? Well, after the child dies at the end of this chapter, the child born out of this particular conception. The child dies. Then, years later, months later... One of David's brother, one of David's sons rapes his half-sister. David finds out doesn't do anything about it. So one of David's other son, whose half-brother is the one that raped his sister, decides he's going to do something about it. And David's son kills David's other son. David gets so mad at him, he banishes him, he leaves. For two years, he doesn't talk to him. He comes back to say, Dad, I just need some help, I need some advice. David says, I'm not talking to you, I will not see you. And for the next few years, he didn't talk to him again. Until finally that son said, I'm going to take your throne, Dad. And he goes and he talks to the people, and he creates a coup. And he takes David out of his palace, runs him out of his palace, runs him into the wilderness. David has to flee for his life from his own son. And then his own son, on this very balcony where he saw Bathsheba for the first time, sets up a tent. And in that tent, he one by one calls up his dad's wives, his own stepmoms. And in public view of everyone, he sleeps with them. And you thought your family was dysfunctional. Right? David eventually musters enough strength. They go back. They take the palace back. Absalom, the son that had the coup and slept with the stepmoms, leaves and runs. And as he's running, David's men are chasing him. Absalom, it tells us in Scripture, by the way, that Absalom had the most beautiful hair in the land. It's like Fabio hair. All right? Like when they cut it, it it says this in the Scripture. This is crazy. That every year he cut it once a year and it weighed five pounds when he cut it. But as he's riding through the forest, his hair gets caught in a tree and he's standing there. And David had said, don't do anything to my son. Don't kill my son. Don't touch my son. And his general, Joab, who's the one that he sent out in the first place, says, forget that. This guy has been a traitor. And they run javelins through him. Spears him. David, at the end of his life, is sitting there with a son that has raped his daughter that's now been killed. A daughter who never made it past that, who lived in exile her life. And another son who is killed by his own general of war. All because he was careless and disengaged and he decided to run through that yellow light. It's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. Understand, sin can destroy your life. A great old pastor, I mean, this is like 300, I don't mean like he's old in age, like he lived a long time ago, named John Owen said, you must be killing sin or it will kill you. And the way you do that is you actively engage in God's plan. You actively engage in what God has called you to do. David stopped doing what God had called him to do. And as a result, he found himself in a place he never should have been in. When you are actively serving where God wants you to serve, it's a lot more difficult to make choices that are going to put you against God's will. And the last thing is, if the situation comes up, the Bible uses one word over and over and over again when it talks about temptation and the way we are to respond. And the way we are to respond is to flee. 
to run, to get away. David, when he stood on that balcony, when he saw Bathsheba, and he said, that, who is that? And they said, you mean the daughter? You mean the wife? He should have said, I'm going back in the house, I'm locking the door, and I'm not coming out until she's gone. Now, for some of you, it's time because you are putting yourselves in situations where maybe you've said no once or you've said yes once and you think, well, I can handle it this time. I can handle it this time. Some of you need to run. You need to go lock yourself in your room and say, I'm not going out there. I'm not going to that party. I'm not going to that place. I'm not talking to that person. I'm not making that phone call. I'm not logging on. I'm not opening that website. You run. David didn't. And he sinned. And it cost him dearly. But the question becomes, well, what do you do then? Because some of you are here, and you may be on the edge of it, but some of you are here, and you're already in the midst of it. Or you're living with it. And the truth is, once you commit that sin, or put yourself in that lifestyle, you make yourself vulnerable. Vulnerable to the enemy, vulnerable to other people, vulnerable to... Just in general. And there's one thing that we hate being as people is vulnerable. And the reason that V is really large is because I think that at this moment, at this moment, when sin occurs or we find ourselves caught in an addiction of some sort, we have a choice. And the V represents two paths that we can take. And the first path that we can take is the path that David took over and over for the first year that this happened. You cover and you cope. You try to cover it up. You try not to let people know. You try not to say things. But then you cope with it however you can. And that leads to that leads a lot of times to some sort of substance addiction or some sort of person addiction or some sort of addiction to something because you're just trying to cope with the hole that you created in your life. And for a year, David covered and coped. We know it was a miserable time for him because in Psalms he talks about that his soul was crushed, that he was withering away, that his bones were broken. Some of you, you don't have to have that explained to you. You know what it's like to lay down at night and go, man, I can't believe I did that. I won't ever be able to get over that. Or I can't believe I did it again. I'm never going to break free from that. But the other option is the one that David eventually chose. And that's to repent and return. Here's the rest of the story. It tells us in chapter 12 that um, a year later. Now, we know it was a year later because the baby had been born. And in ancient Israel... Uh, when a woman conceived, nine months later, she gave birth to a child. The same as today, right? And so, that's what they sent me to seminary for stuff like that, okay? Um, and so we know it was a year later, about a year later, the preacher, the local preacher comes, the national preacher comes and says to David, tells him this story, some of you know this, but he tells him a story, hey, there was this guy had a bunch, you had a bunch of sheep, and there was a guy next door who had one sheep, and he loved that sheep, they treated it like a pet. I mean, it's a little creepy the way they describe the sheep, it eats at the table with them, and all that kind of stuff, alright? But he says, this is prize sheep, they're only sheep, they're one sheep, and the guy that had a lot went to the guy that had one, and he took the one, and he said, it's mine now, and the guy was without, and David gets mad, gets incensed, and then Nathan gives the most pointed sermon an application in history he says that's you and then David has to respond and Psalm 51 is his response and we're going to go through this very quickly I promise Psalm 51 is his response and it's really just three steps to how you if you are caught in sin if you're in the midst of addiction if you're in the midst of grief if you're in the midst of guilt and shame Three things you do. First of all, you come clean about what you've done. Look at Psalm 51. By the way, if you, uh, if you have a smartphone, you have a Bible, it's at fbcgillisville.com slash guilt. Okay? So you can go there and look. And the, this will be there. And in fact, the whole story about David and Bathsheba is underneath this there. Psalm 51 says, 
This is written, it tells us, this isn't up here, but it's on the, um, just so you know, if you look in your Bible, a lot of you will have this. It says, to the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. So this is when Nathan confronted him. Verse 1, he says, have mercy on me, God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth of my inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The first thing that David does and the first thing that we have to do if we want to get through guilt and shame and get over it is we have to come clean about what we've done and about who we are. We have to come and say, this is it. And David comes to the Lord. He doesn't try to rationalize. He doesn't try to get over it. He doesn't try to say, God, listen, I've got some explanation for you here. He just comes before the Lord and he says, this is who I am. This is what I've done. I am coming completely clean before you now. Psychologists that have studied how people get over addiction or get past things, and this isn't even Christian psychologists, but just psychologists in general, say that the most difficult step is to admit what we already know. And to be honest about it. We're scared of losing our reputation or losing the security that might come because we did it at a job or we our family are going to be impacted. Or we, we, we really worry uh, from a Christian perspective, from a, from a sinner perspective, we worry about losing the thing that we like to do the most, the sin that we have. And what I love about David is he owns his sin. He takes responsibility for it. He doesn't try to explain it away. He doesn't try to make a deal. He doesn't come to God and say, hey God, listen man, if we could, let's just for a minute recap all the good stuff I've done. Like, like God, you remember when we were out in the pasture? Man, those were good times. Man, I wrote a lot of good songs there. Maybe you've looked at them lately. Man, they're good. They're songs. They're awesome. Um, remember that whole David and Goliath? Man, wasn't that awesome, God? God, you guys sat up there and we can watch a replay of that real quick. Um, like when I, nobody else would do it, God, but I would. I'd go out there and run out there and do it. Or, hey, when Saul was coming trying to kill me and I didn't kill him because you told me not to. Man, God, man, I've done a lot of really cool stuff. Hey, I got a little problem here that happened about a year ago. Like, David doesn't come and say, hey, listen, um... I've been a good boy most of the time, but i got one little issue. Like when I confront my children with stuff, if they've done something wrong, do you know how many times I've heard the explanations of all the good stuff they've done? Right? But dad, remember when, or mom, you know, I used to, I, I understand, yeah, yeah, that was good. This is not. He doesn't come to God and does that. He says, this is who I am. Not only that, he says, This is not just what I've done. This is who I am. I am a sinner. I am someone not just that has committed a sin, but in my inmost being, I am a sinner. From the moment I was born, I was a sinner. In my mom's womb, I was a sinner. Now that is a statement away from what the psychology of the world will tell you, which is you're supposed to tell yourself you're good enough, you're strong enough, you're able to do this. God says the way you come clean is you say, I have nothing good about me and myself. I am a sinner and have been from the moment I was conceived. Now, if you doubt that, all you have to do is have kids. Amen? Right? I did not send them to sin camp for them to figure out how to do it. My precious three-year-old Ava this week 
went up to her mom. They were home after school. We have in our freezer the freezer pops. You know what I'm talking about? The things that you put in there and freeze. And it's basically just sugar and ice, all right, with food coloring in it. All right. And so it's not some not food, some kind of harmful dye, probably, but it's there. All right. And when summertime, we go out there, we cut them off, they eat them, they love them. Anytime they're outside, they think they need a popsicle. And so Ava goes up to Susan and she says, Mom, uh, I need a popsicle. And the Bible says we're supposed to do what Jesus tells us. And Jesus says, give them what they want. (laughs) Very clever, right? But my three-year-old has learned how to manipulate the words of Jesus, which he never said, for her own effect. Right? Like, my kids are sinners. Amen? And so are yours. Amen? I mean, last week, I was thinking about this. My, my daughter, precious uh, six-year-old daughter, Maddie. Maddie, downstairs, they're talking about sin. They're talking about sin in their lives. And her kindergarten um, Sunday school teacher had them make a book. And I, you can't read that maybe from there, but it just says sinned on it. And these are the ways that Maddie has sinned in her life. So I thought, oh, this would be cool. We'll see some cool stuff. Number one, steal. Like, what is it? Apparently I'm raising a kleptomaniac. I did not know that. Number two, punch your sister's head. Like, what? Number three, lie. Number four, punch. There's going to be a theme you're going to get here in a minute, all right? Number four, don't trust God. Now, that's the preacher kid's answer right there, right? Like, we don't trust God. Next, hit. Next to last is clip down. Now, some of you don't understand that, but at school, when you clip down, it means you've done something bad enough to go down on the, on the punishment chart. And she had to clip down one day, and it was tragic. And then lastly, Kick your sister in the face. <laughs> Sinner from birth. Amen. And so we don't have to say, man, God, I've been a pretty good guy. We come clean. And while we laugh about it, you know what? It's so hard to be honest with God and say, man, I'm a sinner. And it's not just that I messed up this one time. It's the nature of who I am. He says in here, this is a statement that I honestly struggle with sometimes reading this. He says in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned. Now I'm going to read that. You know the first thing I think? Uriah. Right? He kind of kind of raw deal in all this. He didn't do anything wrong. And yet David goes to God and says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. We're like, wait a minute, what about Bathsheba? What, what do you mean against God and God alone? What about other people? What David realizes here and what we have to realize is that all of our sin is ultimately directed at God. We're not satisfied with what God has given us. We don't trust God to take care of us. We go around God outside of the boundaries to get what we want. I've said this before, but it's true. Breaking the first commandment leads us, you know, the Ten Commandments. Breaking the first one, love God, have no idols, uh, have no other God before Him. The breaking the first commandment leads to breaking all the others. David says, why do I need power? Why do I need Bathsheba's beauty? Why did my soul have such incredible power that drove me to go after her? 
He basically says to God, it's because I did not think and trust in yours. And he realized that the most important one he had offended was God. What he had done to Uriah was hideous, despicable. What David did to God, believe it or not, was worse than what he did to Uriah. And this is something that we have to get or we don't get repentance. And that is, we always focus on what our sin does to others or what it does to us. But we rarely think about what our sin does to God. He's the ultimate creator of the universe. He's the one that started it all. Without him there is nothing. We owe every single breath we have to him. In addition to that, he has been generous and good to us. I mean, think about David. David said, you took me from the shepherd fields and I had nothing and gave me everything. For you, he has given his own son to rescue you and poured out so much blessing and mercy. To rebel against him as cosmic treason with the worst ingratitude that has ever been given. I mean, our sin is what is responsible for the bloody, brutal death of the Son of God. I mean, think about what the cross tells you about your own sin. And the severity that God considers your own sin. Jesus died not because of what our sin had done against other people. He died because of what our sin had done to God. There are a lot of people in our world today especially that hate the doctrine of hell. But suppose just for a minute that hell is exactly what our sin demands. What we've done to each other doesn't deserve hell, but what we did to God does. David's overwhelmed. He says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. And we've talked about this. The repetition there means that in Hebrew it's an intensity of emotion. You, God, you. After everything you gave me, I did this to you. When was the last time you were emotional about what your sin had done to God? Not that you cried because it made you feel embarrassed or you were worried that other people would find out or what they would think if they did, but what it did to God. Until we are most upset at what our sin does to Him, we're never ready to change. As long as repentance is just about not getting caught or bad circumstances you've created, you're not repenting. And once you come clean, then you ask God to forgive you. Look what he says in the next verses. Purge me with hyssop. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. If you go and look up hyssop on Wikipedia, it's going to tell you a plant with white flowers. Like, they make a big deal. But in their day, it had two meanings. First of all, it meant at the Passover. Do you remember the Passover? The Egyptians have them as slaves. God's going to set them free. And the night before they're set free, they have to spread blood over the doorpost. Do you remember that story? They did it with the leaves of hyssop. And then... Hyssop was used to cleanse lepers. I'll be clean. Wash me now through water than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken. God, you've had this on me. Let it rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and all my iniquities. He goes on to say, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And hope hold me with the willing spirit. He says, Lord, I need to be made whole. I need your forgiveness. And I need to be made whole. When you come clean before the Lord and you're broken before Him and you realize your sin has done this to Him, then you say to Him, God, forgive me. I can't do anything about it. I can't help you out here. I can't help out what's going on in my life. You help me. Create in me. Renew in me. Cast me not away. Take not. Restore to me. Uphold me. 
Purge me. Wash me. Clean me. The proudest thing we can ever say in our life is, God, hey, I want to help you get myself right. God says, you can't do anything about it. And then the last thing is, once you've come clean, once you've asked for forgiveness, this is a very important step that we often miss. Surrender to be used for the glory of God. And we're done when I say this. Look at what David says. He says, once you do all that, once you restore, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, I'd give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. What you want, God, the sacrifices you want are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. God, you will not despise it. Here's the thing. The reason that we need to be set free from guilt and shame and addiction is not just so we'll be set free, although that's really good. The reason we're set free is so that our lips can praise the Lord and that we can teach transgressors your ways and that sinners will return to Him. Our lives are not about us. Your addiction is not about you. It's about the glory that it's robbing from God. Your guilt and your shame is robbing the Lord from the glory He deserves. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to come clean, ask for forgiveness, and surrender to being used by Him? David is saying here basically, Lord, I want to be used whatever it means for Your glory. You know what I love about this passage of Scripture? You know what I love about Psalm 51? Is this, that you and I right now are the answer to the prayer that David prays in Psalm 51. I don't think David could ever imagine that thousands of years later we'd be sitting here talking about the example that he set in coming clean after his sin with Bathsheba and talking about how we can do it in our lives. But his desire that he would teach transgressors and sinners to turn back to God and that he would praise God with his lips is being fulfilled even as we read this today. And my question to you simply is, are you ready to let go and to surrender your life to the Lord? Let's pray.